chapter 3, verse 16. If you're new to our community, we have decided to take the most obvious verse in the Bible and to spend and to go through it phrase by phrase for the last several weeks. And so we've, at such a rapid clip, we've considered for God so loved the world he gave his son, whosoever believes shall not perish is where we ended last week. And this week we're going to look at the idea of eternal life. So John chapter 3, verse 16, we'll read it together. Once we find it, if you need a Bible, let one of our ushers know. And, and let's just get something out of the way, all right? Right now. There is now one word that summarizes all that is wrong in the world. Purdue. John chapter 3, <laughs> verse 16. Let's read it together. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, we are going to do a little something tricky this morning. I'm going to fire up something that I affectionately call the Telestrator. The Telestrator, for those of you that are uh, uninitiated, is a way that I get to draw poorly in front of you all. You can make fun of my handwriting, but I want to let you know this, this is a slice of heaven that's come to earth. All right, so Mondo, fire up the Telestrator. The words eternal life, or is it fired up? There it is. So we'll abbreviate it with a little E, L. It equals, <laughs> whoops, the Telestrator's upside down. Mondo. Mondo. All right, so there's eternal life. Is that better? See, this was awesome. It adds so much to your understanding of the word. A-I-O-S. Equals this phrase. Zoe aeonios. If you just want to impress your friends. Now, zoe is a Greek word for life. Aeonios is the Greek word that you could translate it in a number of different ways. Eternal, everlasting. But the most precise definition of this word is of the age. So eternal life. For God so loved the world, He gave His only Son. Whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Eternal life means life of the age. Now, does that clear it up? That makes total sense, right? When I think of eternal life, I think of life in heaven. When I think of life in heaven, I think of clouds, and I think of harps, and I think of, think of angel wings, and I think of church services that go on forever. And quite honestly, though much better than the other place, it doesn't sound very compelling sometimes. So we want to take a bit of time to understand if this is the phrase, shall not perish but have life of the age, what exactly does that mean? And when exactly does that start? So Mondo, fire up the Telestrator Part 2. This is going to be amazing. The Jews had a very sophisticated view of history where there were two ages creatively titled this present age and then the second one is the age to come. Now, I was being sarcastic about sophisticated and creatively titled, right? They divided history into this present age which is characterized by evil 
and sin and death. And then the age to come is characterized by like all the good stuff. Righteousness and justice. I'm not going to write all those words because it wouldn't fit on my little telestrator screen. But you get the point. And these two ages are separated by a day called the Day of the Lord. When you read in the Old Testament, statements like, at that time, on that day, these are statements that have to do with the day of the Lord. And the idea was, we currently live in this present age, it is characterized by sin and death and evil, but there is a day coming when God will intervene dramatically in human history again, and He will put the world back to the way He intended it to be. So the day of the Lord was good news for the faithful, bad news for everybody else, because God was going to put the world, and in T. Wright's phrase, back to rights. He was going to set the world back up the way in which he intended. So, when you read about eternal life, and the phrase means life of the age, the age it's referring to is this age. So, the phrase eternal life means life of the age to come. That's how it would have been understood in Jesus's, Jesus's, uh, by Jesus' contemporaries. When you talked about eternal life in the first century, nobody thought that was referring to life in heaven when you die. That was just not how the phrase was used. Christianity has traditionally only tried to answer one question. What happens if you die tonight? The problem has been that it leaves another question unanswered. What happens if you live tonight? Right? Christianity has traditionally only dealt with what happens when you die, but it's fascinating that the phrase eternal life doesn't have embedded in it that concept. Instead, it refers to life of the age to come. And one of the things we've learned if you've been around here for a while is that the Scriptures don't talk about us spending forever in heaven. The Scriptures talk about heaven being the place where everybody waits until Jesus shows up again. Then the faithful are reunited with their bodies. They live in a renewed heaven and a renewed earth with resurrected bodies doing human things with a God who now dwells among His people forever. That is the picture we get of afterlife. So it's not in heaven, it's on earth. So if you die now, the scripture says, you're with Christ in some way in the heavens. But then you'll be reunited with your body. A renewed body you'll have. And then you spend, the glimpses we get of life on new heaven and new earth are very much glimpses that have to do with this life. Except there's no sin, no death, no shame, no decay, no nothing. So in the prophets, in Isaiah for instance, life in the new heavens and new earth consists of planting and harvesting, and building, and having societies, and culture, and civilization that's all under the lordship of God, and it all glorifies Him. So there aren't harps, and clouds, and floaty angels. Instead, it's very earthy pictures we get. So eternal life has to do with the kind of life that we will have then. Are you with me on this point, brothers and sisters? Go, if you would, to the book of Luke. We'll go to Luke chapter 18, where Jesus talks about eternal life in a very interesting way. Luke chapter 18. 
we will start in verse 18. Now, brothers and sisters, if this is new to you, the week after Easter is when we kind of spent some time on this, and I would encourage you to go back and check it out. Because one of the, one of the great disservices I think that some in the church have done is that they've not painted compelling pictures, the biblical pictures, of what we end up doing forever. And as a result, many of us, we just think of heaven as kind of a Thomas Kincaid picture in the sky. And again, better than the other place, but not terribly compelling. And so what does it mean to have life in the age to come? Notice how Jesus speaks of this. Luke 18, verse 18. A certain ruler came to Jesus and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit what? Eternal life. Life in the age to come. In Hebrew, it would have been Olam Abba. Life in the age to come. This is a very Jewish question. Jesus gives a very Jewish answer. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal or give false testimony. You shall honor your father and mother. Now interesting, he leaves the one commandment that this dude's breaking off this list. Do not covet. So he kind of sets the guy up a little bit. The man says, all of these I have kept since I was a boy. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for the rich to enter the what? The kingdom of God. Did the man ask about the kingdom of God? No, he asked about eternal life. Jesus says how very hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now you have to understand the context for this. It was thought... If you were rich in the first century, you were automatically blessed. You were one of the haves. You were one of God's favorites if you were rich. So when Jesus teaches that wealth was actually an obstacle to getting into the kingdom, here's what his his followers said. Verse 26, those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? It'd be like me announcing, hey, Billy Graham, he's totally not where it's at. Mother Teresa, she didn't make the cut. I mean, you'd go... Man, if not them, then who? I mean, the rich were the ones supposedly blessed and favored by God. Jesus replied, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Thankful for that. Peter said to them, we've left everything we've had to follow you. We've done the very thing this dude wouldn't. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to them, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age And in the age to come, eternal life. So Jesus talks about this age and the age to come. And he says, in this very interesting conversation, you'll receive blessing in this age. Your family will broaden, in other words. And in the age to come, you'll receive life in the age to come. It's almost redundant. You'll receive in the age to come life in that age, in other words. Now, notice... The man asks about eternal life. Jesus talks about following him in response. 
Jesus then says how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God, and then the disciples say, who can be saved? These four concepts, eternal life, kingdom of God, following Jesus, and being saved, notice, they're all synonyms for the same thing. See, the Gospels can get confusing if you don't understand this point. John has Jesus talking about eternal life. Matthew, Mark, and Luke has Jesus all the time talking about the kingdom of God. Paul and the rest of the New Testament epistles always talk about being saved. And if you're not careful, you can think that those are referring to different things. But entering the kingdom, having eternal life, following Jesus, and being saved are all the same thing. They're different ways of expressing the same truth, an ongoing, dynamic, covenantal relationship with God through Christ. I want you to understand that. Not only for when you read the Gospels, and you can understand when Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God, or when he talks about eternal life, or when Paul talks about being saved, it's all the same thing. But I want you to understand it, because this whole discussion hadn't anything to do with what happened to you when you died. It had everything to do with grasping a hold of the life to come. And it sounds from this text that eternal life is only in the future, right? In the age to come, you get life in the age to come. But go to John, go back to John chapter 3. Are you following me here, folks? Here's the reason I'm asking. Not only is there a diminishment of my substantial physical capacities, but my thinking, I feel like I'm thinking through cement. And so I just want to make sure I'm being clear. Whether or not you agree... Um, that's okay, but am I at least being clear on this stuff? You'd, you'd interrupt me? The four of you that said yes, you'd interrupt me if I weren't being clear? By the way, that was a vote of no confidence in my clarity. Go to John chapter 3. John 3, verse 36. It sounds like eternal life is a future thing, but then you start reading verses like this. John three thirty-six. Whoever believes in the Son has what? Does that sound a present tense to you? It kind of does. Go to John chapter 5. Hmm, I wonder what we'll see here. John chapter 5, verse 24. Very truly I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has... That sounds present to me too. Go if you would to John chapter 6. I wonder what this one will say. Verse 47. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me has eternal life. Now, this is a very big point. When does eternal life start? The minute you believe. When does eternal life end? Never. So Jesus teaches that you can have the life of the age to come in this present age. You can have eternal life now. It's not just life of the age to come, but it's life of the age to come in this age. Does that blow your mind a little bit? Yes, so back to the telestrator. Mondo. Mondo, by the way, is a real person. Some have argued he is a figment of my imagination. He is not. I have seen him. 
Okay. So you have this present age, the age to come. It was thought that this day of the Lord would be one singular event that would transition between them. Now here comes Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus starts preaching, Hey, my kingdom, the kingdom of God, it's right here and right now. Repent, it's at hand, it's close to you. And he starts preaching, someday my kingdom will come. And there will be a great judgment that happens. And so Jesus talks about his kingdom as being here and as waiting fulfillment in the future. All of a sudden, he splits the singular day of the Lord into two days. Associated with his first coming, and with a second coming. And instead of this day of the Lord ending the present age, what his first coming did was inaugurated eternal life right in the middle of this age. And that was what was so confusing to the New Testament writers. Hold on, hold on, hold on. How can Rome still be in power? How can sin still be operative in the world? How come the adversary has not been completely defeated? And Jesus would say, I inaugurated my kingdom, but its fulfillment is in the future. So we live in what theologians call the now, but the not yet. We have started the meal. We're in the appetizer phase, but the full meal is coming. Now, If you're a little foggy on this, everybody was. Jesus would walk around saying, kingdom's here, but pray that my kingdom would come. Okay? He'd walk around saying, hey, if I cast out demons, the kingdom's right here. And then he would talk about, here are the signs to look for for when I return. And one of the things you recognize is that what happened was this day of the Lord started eternal life right in the middle of this age and that what will happen whoops that was not the right thing either oh my goodness Mondo okay I don't want that I want that Okay, I want that one. We'll just do, we'll just find yellow. (laughs) Is that when Jesus returns, what ends? Sin, death, evil, this present age. What goes on forever? The age to come. But notice, the age to come has started already right now. And the reason the New Testament writers knew that is the two things that were going to happen. When the age to come started is that there would be a resurrection of the dead and the Holy Spirit would be given to all people. And so Jesus shows up and he rises from the dead. To the Jews, everybody was supposed to rise from the dead at the same time. And yet here's this Jesus clearly risen from the dead. All they can conclude is this. Unmistakably, the age to come has broken out right in the middle of this one. Right in the middle of sin and death and suffering are the unmistakable signs of the age to come. So, 
When do you have life in the age to come? Now and in the age to come. You live, think about the significance of this. Why is it that the scriptures say that you're perfect and righteous and holy and justified and you sin? Well, it's because you're now and you're not yet. Why is it that we can say the church is the undestructible bride of Jesus and it's human, sinful, and petty? And if that's news to you, the second part, just hang around us long enough and... That was kind of funny. (laughs) Or not. How can we say both things are true about the church? The church is now, but not yet. How can we say the enemy has been defeated, and yet he still wages war. Now and not yet. Why do we sing songs of celebration? Because it's now. Why do we sing songs of lament and grieving? Because it's not yet. How come God heals? Because it's now. How come He doesn't always heal? Because it's not yet. See, this way of understanding it explains so much that's true of us. You and I live in the overlap of two ages. Inaugurated by Jesus to be fulfilled upon His return. So when does eternal life start? Now. The problem has been, the American church ends John 3.16 after the thou shall not perish. For God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish. And we end it there, so Christianity just becomes another way of escaping hell. It's a get out of hell card. Right? And all Jesus takes care of is He takes care of our sin. So what happens when you die tonight? Well, if you know Jesus, you're going to heaven. The problem is, Jesus didn't die to give us heaven. He came to give us something called eternal life which also answers the question, what happens if I live tonight? Because eternal life is not just a quantity of life, life forever, but it's a quality, a kind of life. Go to John 17. Oh, we're getting warmed up now. See the telestrator. It's glorious. There's only one place I know where eternal life is specifically defined. John 17, this is the middle of a prayer that Jesus is praying. Verse 3. Now this is eternal life. Now, I'm expecting something pretty epic. Joy, peace, gold streets, mansions in heaven. Now this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You want to know what eternal life is? And this is straight out of Jeremiah 31. It's knowing God. And when can that start? Now. Now, if that doesn't sound real impressive to you, remember when we talked about what believing meant. If all believing means is intellectually knowing, well, demons believe. They had the best theology in the Gospels. Our point was that knowing means biblically experiencing. I mean, 
You can, let's take an online dating service. Is there a difference between reading someone's profile and meeting them in person? Absolutely. That's why we insist on meeting them in person. Married folks, is there a difference between dating and seeing the person you are fond of whenever you're dressed up, smelling nice, put together, and then being married? Is there a difference? Of course. Right? You can know about somebody, but to know them is an entirely different thing. So what is eternal life? It's life of the age to come in the midst of this present age that is not only a quantity of life, it's a quality of life based around having an ongoing, dynamic, covenantal relationship with God through Christ. This God dwells in you. You are in this God. Everything should be rearranged. I mean, when Jesus talks about, hey, consider the birds and the flowers. Why do you worry? Look at them. They don't worry. They know they have a a father. They know they're taken care of. See, when Jesus gives us these images, he's talking about what life, what an eternal kind of life looks like that you can have right now. It is possible to forgive your enemies. It is possible to not orient your life around money. It is possible to serve instead of try to take power over and control people. It is possible to be the kind of person that seeks good even for those who stand opposed to you. See, we are the presence of the future. And what is true of us, biblically, is a foretaste, an appetizer of what's coming. And what's true of us? Fundamental thing. We are known by God and we know Him. That is why when we talked about perishing, I never knew you is the judgment rendered. Knowing and being known. Now, with eternal life comes incredible responsibility. Go, if you would, to the book of Matthew 25. You track it with me still? My voice is fleeing. I always thought that when you get to heaven, you get, like, something happens to your character so that you're automatically perfect. And and that literally it's all equal-sized mansions and crowns. We walk in streets of gold, and we all get harps, and we all float on clouds, and we have an eternal church service. And I'm a fan of church services, but I haven't found one yet that I could stand for more than a couple hours, just personally. Maybe I haven't been to the right church, but... The images, though, that we're given are so much different. Life in the age to come, beginning now. But I want you to understand, with that life comes great responsibility. Matthew 25, Jesus tells a story about a master who goes on a long journey. And he entrusts his servants with different amounts of wealth. And then he comes back. And there's an accounting for what they did with their wealth. Some of them invested 
And they're rewarded. One of them in the story digs a hole and (laughs) doesn't do a thing with it. And that one is punished. And if you're reading carefully, you recognize, oh, this is a story about Jesus' first coming and his second coming and then what his people are supposed to be doing in the meantime. And who are people that live in the meantime? We are. But notice what Jesus says when he gives the point of the parable. Verse 29. For whoever has will be given more. And they will have an abundance. In other words, if you've been faithful with what you've been given in the age, in this present age, in the age to come, you receive more responsibility. I didn't know that. I thought we all got equal sized mansions. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. In other words, if you're not faithful with the little you've been given, no more will be given to you later. Go, if you would, to the book of Luke. He says this even more directly. Luke 16, at the end of another story about being shrewd, Luke 16, notice what Jesus says. Verse 10. Luke 16.10. This kills me. Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, which by the way, all of us have, who will trust you with true riches? And if you've not been trustworthy in handling someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? In other words, the images we get of a new heaven and a new earth is of a resurrected people living human lives. That means there'll be societies and cultures. That means there'll be people spread out over the, over the world. And evidently, if you've been faithful with a little in this life, more will be given to you in the next I have no idea what that means, but it is certainly not the way I heard it growing up. I heard you get your ticket, you do what you want, and then at the end of the age, you stand before God, give Him the right answer, Jesus, and you get in and you walk on streets of gold forever with harps and wings. Evidently, how you live now, how well you live, an eternal kind of life now matters. It's not like you just get wiped clean the minute you show up at the door. Yes, you're justified. Of course, you're declared righteous. But what will you do forever then? Evidently, what you're given to do depends at least in part on what you do now. Go to 1 Corinthians. It gets worse. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul here is speaking of church leaders. This church, and I know this is shocking, this church in the first century was playing favorites. Well, I like this teacher better. No, I like that teacher better. And I know the churches today don't do that (coughs) at all. But this church was. And so Paul says, hey, by the way, let's be clear. Any church, the foundation of that church is Jesus 
And then church leaders should take great care with how they build on that foundation. Because their work will be judged. Now what's true of church leaders is true of the rest of us. So Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 3.10, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation. He planted the church at Corinth. As a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. Someone else is leading the church now. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, or wood, or hay, or straw, and again, we're speaking metaphorically, right? He's not talking about how to build gold churches. He's talking about the difference between building a church based on what is eternal, or building a church based on just what is human. And he says, if anyone builds on this foundation, their work will be shown for what it is. Because the day, do you see that the day is capitalized? So we're talking about the second coming of Jesus. The day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and fire will test the quality of each person's work. What? I thought just the pagan folks got judged. No! You and I are saved by grace, but we are judged according to what we have done while in the body. And this is all over the New Testament, by the way. We just like to just downplay those parts. Because for us, we've just made the whole thing about getting in. But that's not what eternal life is. Eternal life isn't just getting in. It's living an eternal kind of life here and now in the present age. And it's shocking to think that your life now will go to some degree to determine your responsibilities later. Think about that. I just thought, well, I know the right answer, Jesus, so hand me my harp. Evidently, there's a little bit more going on. Some of us, some of us show up to heaven smelling like smoke. Now what does this mean? How do, you, how do you live in a way that is fit for the coming judgment? Go if you would to the book of Matthew chapter 6. Are you guys still out there? Do we have so much to celebrate? Oh my goodness. Yes, when does eternal life start? Now. Well, what's that mean? Well, minimally, it means ongoing, interactive, covenantal relationship with God the Father through His Son, Jesus, filled by the Holy Spirit. You are the presence of the future. You live embodying an alternative to the ways of the world. The world says revenge. We say reconciliation. The world says accumulation. We say simplicity. The world says lust. We say love. Right? The world says justice. We say compassion. The world says how you look and what country you're from, what socioeconomic status you have, those things matter. We say every other way of measuring identity is subsumed under the banner of child of God. We're to be the living, breathing embodiment of the goodness that comes with living under God's rule. 
And when we do that, notice what happens. Matthew chapter, what did I say? I meant six. Verse 10. Verse 9. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in the heavens, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Hold on a second. Hold hold on a second. I thought the point was getting me out of here. I thought that was the point. Evidently, Jesus instructed His followers to ask that the rule of the heavens would come here in and through me. Evidently, the point isn't getting a bunch of people out of here. Evidently, the point is mobilizing a group of people who here and now live an eternal kind of life. When they do the will of the Father, the reign of heaven has now come to earth. And isn't that how the story ends? Doesn't the story end with a new Jerusalem coming out of heaven to earth? We're the advance guard. So when you forgive, when you're compassion, when you're compassion, when you're compassionate, when you're generous, when you share the good news of Jesus to others, when you embody the Father's will, you are bringing just a little slice of what awaits everything. You're bringing that here and now. So literally, men and women, what we get to do in the meantime, having eternal life here and now, is we get to embody and proclaim that life. And that we're held accountable. I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's not equal-sized mansions. There are some of us who are squandering the gifts and resources we have on meaningless activity. There are some of us who have been trusted with incredible resources who squander them on just indulgence. Some of us have been entrusted with the incredible capacity to influence people, to strengthen others, to bless. And we squander our lives on Kim Kardashian and Facebook. I mean, seriously. What occupies the people of God? It's not God. It's just life. And I don't mean to say that we're to be monks and nuns in order to focus on eternal things. I mean to say how you live your regular, ordinary, average life with your friends, your family, your job, your school, your class list, your children, your parents, that whole thing that sits before you the minute you walk out these doors, that's eternal life. And you have the opportunity to grab hold. You don't just get, have a get out of perishing free card. So what happens if you die tonight? You live eternal life. What happens if you live tonight? You live eternal life. Jesus answers both questions. What happens if I die? But what happens if I live? I hunger to be the kind of person through whom and in whom the reign of the heavens comes close to earth.
I hunger to be the kind of person where I just get little bits and tastes, faint echoes, little slivers of what's coming. For me, that's worth your whole life. That's worth my whole life. I want Jesus to have more than my sins. And isn't that great that he takes care of those? But for so much of my life, that's all he got. Hey, Jesus, I give you all my sin. Pretty sweet deal. But he didn't get my heart. He didn't get my head. He didn't get my wallet. He just got my sin. But that's not the invitation. That's not life. So men and women, would you stand for a moment? The telestrator has spoken. Bless you. You know, if Jesus were here playing a guitar, he would not need all those pedals. He just wouldn't. Close your eyes for a moment. Don't know how this hits you. There's no guilt, no condemnation. But for some of us, perhaps there is a renewed weight that doesn't come from having to earn God's love or prove that we're worthy of it, but instead the invitation that sits before us to live what Paul calls the life that's really life. To be preoccupied with seeing little slices of the rain of heaven come near. And so perhaps we awaken a bit from our slumber and feel the weight of the banner we now carry. For others of us, perhaps, the reality that the life of heaven can start here and now is just totally, amazingly good news. And the question then becomes, well, how do I grab hold? And that's certainly never a one-time thing. It's a posture of the heart. But it can begin here and now. And for others of us, perhaps, this whole journey in John 3.16 has just been a reminder that the basic message of God and the character of God can be understood by the smallest of us. And yet we can give our whole lives to this and never reach the bottom of who God is and how God has spoken. And so would you take a moment and would you just pray wherever you're at, however you are, would you just pray and ask God to lead you into this life that is really life even in the midst of your suffering or your heartache or your disappointment, in the midst of your success or your joy, 